Reading is fucking hard sometimes. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode three. In this episode, we're talking about uh, William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. I'm Ryan. Sitting across from me is my good friend and fellow host, Jacob. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Jacob. Uh, yeah. Welcome to our bi-weekly, weekly, tri-weekly, I don't know, whenever we feel like <laughs> recording, book club-esque podcast. We like to think of it as a cult. Maybe you'll get along with us where we read, you know, whatever books we decide to at that time to decide what is going to be kept on our personal bookshelves. And we podcast because, you know, we want the accountability and, uh, you know, to actually read and, well... Me personally, I like the sound of my own voice, you know. Me too. I actually. Uh, and if you haven't read the book yet, uh, I mean, you can listen to the podcast. Uh, I know at least some people do that. But This week, uh, you might want to listen before him. It might stop you from, yeah, from something yeah, or other. Maybe we should go Other back, weeks, maybe. Yeah, yeah you we should go, you should go back to week two, add the disclaimer at the end. Uh, but anyway... Seriously, if you haven't read it, you might want to might want to hit pause, go read the book and then come back because sometimes we tend to get off on tangents uh, without summarizing. So you may not know what the hell we're talking about. Sure. And it's just spoiler ridden, obviously. Yeah. You know, there's just going to be spoilers all over the place. But before we get into the meat of the book talk, we're going to give you a ridiculously brief. And for this one, I definitely mean brief uh, <laughs> plot summary. We'll talk about the writer a little bit. Um, and then the way we like to do it is instead of, uh, you know, cracking open our big literary analysis brains, you know, you don't want to listen to all that. There's plenty of essays and people well more qualified than us. Uh, we just like to, we just like to pull a few questions maybe that we thought about while reading the book, uh, to kind of pose to each other and maybe just, you know, chew over for a little bit. And then, uh, when that's all said and done, we give a little rating system and, uh, boom, bang, boom podcast is uh is done for the week before of course we we announce our uh our next week what we'll be recording then so yes all right so let's do the summary the sound and the fury by william faulkner super duper brief summary so the sound and the fury it's a wonderful little tale about the compson family and their tragically dysfunctional decline at the start of the 20th century. Was that brief enough for you, Ryan? Uh, yeah. It was, I think that it was perfectly, perfectly encompasses a brief summary of the book without getting into anything about what makes this book um, something interesting. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Faulkner a little bit. Go for it. For, for some reason, I, I always uh, associate Faulkner... Uh, with like an earlier time period. So he was born in 1897, died in 1962. Okay. Um, because I think he writes a lot about um, just Southern themes, uh, I always sort of associate him uh, with like an earlier period of time, like, like, like the post-Civil War. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, which is ridiculous. Obviously, this book's chapters are broken up by dates. It's very clear that, you know, he, he lived in the 20th century. But for some reason in my head, I, I always associate him uh, being an older writer than than he really is. Um, that said, he obviously is a, is a well-renowned, uh, highly regarded 20th century writer. He won a uh, Nobel, Nobel Prize, Prize yeah. uh, for his last novel, I think. And um, he's written, you know, a lot of stuff. As I Lay Dying, um, Absalom, Absalom, 
Uh, obviously, the, the Sound and the Fury um, is probably his most critically acclaimed book. And um, reading through one of his interviews, at least around the time or after the time he wrote it, um, and some other stuff still uh, he regarded as his like uh, he, he wouldn't say best work, but the the one that he uh, what, did he, what did he say feel, feels most tender about. Hmm, okay. um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, he's he is a staple for, you know, Southern uh, 20th century American literature. Um, he's just as important as, you know, a guy like like Hemingway when it comes to sort of the canon of of American lit, like there's just no other way around it. Um, that said, uh, he's dense. This was a tough nut to crack. Yep. I mean, uh, you know, a few weeks back we did Hemingway and we kind of talked a little bit about his writing style. You can go mm-hmm. back and listen to that episode for more detail about that. Last week, I thought we got a nice little change, uh, with light. We cannot see it, but this one certainly was, um, it was a tough nut to crack. I mean, I think that's yeah. that's the best way to put it, especially early on in this book. Um, it certainly wasn't something that kind of prepared you in any way to 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 sort of take on just how sometimes like incoherent and difficult it was to sort of manage the first you know little bit of this book. And we can get yeah. into more details of breaking it down. But my initial, you know, when I finally put this book down, my initial kind of I've just sort of felt, you know, relief that it was, it was kind of a slog. I mean, we, we had texted each other back and forth throughout the process of reading this book. And it's like, man, where are you at? What page are you on? How far are you into this? This one's a little bit, this one was a challenge. This one we kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, for almost everybody, at least uh, that I know, read, uh, a rose for Emily, that his short story in, you know, high school or, or, you know, maybe, maybe university, but, um, you know, so if you've, if you've read that and you haven't read this, which again, turn off the podcast if you haven't read this and go, go slog through it, but, um, or not. Yeah. Or, or but not. Maybe. Uh, yeah. but, uh, maybe, maybe, at least you, be. you know, if you, if you go and read through it, then you'll at least kind of understand a little bit more where we're coming from. Yeah. But uh, point I was going to make is, is that, you know, despite the, the type of narrative choices that he made in this book, like Faulkner has a style of, of writing, um, like period, like people of that period, um, that tends to be less approachable, um, stylistically than, uh, than things that we're used to reading today. So I think that's part of it too, right? Like it, there is a, a, it's high, it's literary, right? Yeah. Like I mean, I, I'll say this, like, I think whenever I read, um, I think I'm, yeah. This this book seems like tailor made for a very critical reader, like someone who's yeah. always hyper analyzing everything that's going on. And there's nothing wrong with that, um, but that's just not necessarily the type of style I read with, especially when I read fiction. Yeah. When I read nonfiction, that just I tend to read in fields that interest me, so I'm already sure. just coming into it with a very critical mind. Um, but I just I don't have that as much when it comes to fiction, so it's difficult for me sometimes to to really. I don't know, want to want to continue on with this stuff when I don't have this like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I can put this all into context of these sort of the themes, knowing this sort of background behind the writer and maybe reading a little bit about this and just kind of having this more, like you said, literary mind. To yeah. It. All right. So let's I feel like I'd, I'd, I just I want to I want to delay the inevitable, but we have to talk about this book. Yeah, uh, we've we've got to get into it. So let's let's get into it and let's 
uh, let's start from the beginning. Let's deviate. Yeah, let's deviate a little bit from how we've done it. I know we don't it, we don't have as many sort of questions. I know, kind of in our previous ones, we've just sort of oh, here's a question. Let's think about this theme. This one, I feel like we kind of need to address everything. Yeah. Before we can get into these, into what few questions we have. Yes. So, uh, part one is Benji first, first person on Benji who is, uh, mentally retarded, severely mentally impaired to the point he can't communicate outside of, you know, moans and cries. And yeah, this, this section is really, uh, it's really a mind fuck because, um, you know, you, you come into this book and it's kind of just leading off with this idea of here's kind of, you know, it, it, it serves its purpose of giving a background really because it's the yeah. only it's the only section that really truly honestly kind of gives a background granted it's through the eyes of Benji so in a lot of ways it's it's strange but in a lot of ways too it's objective you're seeing the story mm-hmm. um without really having this sort of it it's shaded by the opinions of the person who's presenting it to you which i can appreciate right. but the problem with it is it's at times so incoherent in terms of how the the time changes between the present and the past because Benji, I mean, everything to him, whether it's the past, the present, everything seemingly happens in his mind in the present. So it's very very, uh, different from how we view time, how you would normally view narration on subjects in the past and subjects in the present. And it's coupled with just this, you know, it's, it's so just there's an emotional trigger that happens in an event and it'll send this sort of memory back into the right. past. And it's a lot of times it's hard to kind of decipher this. I, once you start getting used to it, um, you can start to pick up on, on the cues of, of when sure. things are happening. And there, there were, you know, some visual things, right. They, they use some italics, but mainly like who was in the scene was, you know, the, yeah, and really his care change, his caretaker changing was a big right. indication of whether this was like early 1900, if this was like 1903, 1900, 1910, and then 1928, yeah. which is the present of whenever this book is taking place. Right. So I, you know, I think, I think that was, um, that was interesting, but the, um, the, the ability to like give backstory through Benji's like perspective was kind of interesting to me because normally, you know, you do have to sort of fill in some blanks, especially early in a novel with like, you know, why the characters are in, you know, the certain situation or who they are. And so like the, the constantly present, um, sort of narrative that, that Benji sees the world in, um, sort of served that. And I thought, I thought it was kind of, kind of brilliant in a way. And like, I stopped, um, trying to like, uh, struggle with Benji so much when I sort of just treated him like, um, he was getting caught in a daydream, right? So like, um, when his like shirt got caught on, on the nail of the fence or whatever, instead of like trying to like, be disconnected from the present and go back to in time to where he was with caddy. Um, I sort of just said that as like, you know, he's just freezing where he is and he's remembering this thing and then, you know, continuing on like that helped me kind of chunk things up. Sure. As opposed to to like this was of all the sections in this book, this was the one I kind of, uh, I don't know to like relate it to it's 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 kind of you know that that feeling you get if you if you hear a song or you see something and it sparks this like vague memory in your sure. mind whether it's a dream whether it's reality whether it's fantasy whether it's something that you just kind of thought at some point that feeling that that sort of where you can't quite figure out what the connection is to what you're experiencing now in that past 
that is what this whole first this whole first section felt like to me. It was like this long protracted sort of daydream, yep. you know, type fantasy thing. And and I think certainly this was this was the only section I I had to actually go back and reread just just for my own sake of just okay, a lot happens as yeah. far as the as as like the events that are being narrated here for you and and you know I, to go back and digest it and that was kind of the feeling that that I got was that it was this because of the way that it was sort of broken up and 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 the triggers that that created these sort of memories it really kind of invoked that feeling that it's like oh yeah you know whenever you see something and you you know there's a connection there or you feel like it's something you've experienced before in the past but you can't quite put your finger on it that was the binge section to me yeah that was kind of the feeling I personally had the whole time reading. I was like, okay, I can kind of relate to that feeling. Yep. Um, I could see that. Which is, which was, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's strange just because uh, in, in later segments they deal with, you know, more of kind of the unreliable or, or the narrative of what the, whatever they're talking about is, is heavily shaded by that character's opinion or, or how they view things. And, mm-hmm. and this one was more so like just kind of lay bare and, and yeah, very factual, like, yeah. Which, which is, which is kind of interesting. And like, if you, if you really want to like dig down another level, like everybody, you know, treated Benji like you know he couldn't hear or understand or whatever. Right. But here he is telling us very clearly what's happening in front of him. So right. he may not uh, be able to articulate. Um, to other people in his environment, what's what's happening? But he's able to sort of like we're able to see through him that he understands. Sure, which is an um, interesting cer- certain thing. Which is an interesting observation too, especially you know considering when this book was written, just kind of on this idea of how how is the world perceived by people who have mental impairment and yeah. have that sort of handicap, and you know throughout his you know throughout his story he could only communicate verbally to other people through moans and cries and things like that but right. you saw that there he had an active enough mind that he had some semblance of understanding yep. that these things was going on more than you would expect given kind of the way that he actually communicated with other people yeah I mean, um, and, and for Faulkner to to sort of even attempt that um to to be inside of of a character like that i mean keep right. in keep in mind that like this is the point in in the world in which we would lock people up like this. Like even in Faulkner's time, I mean, we did we didn't know how to handle like oh, I mean, yeah, you know, even mental illness they or it in the book and, with his yeah. castration. I mean, there was there was regular right. like chemical yeah, going chemical off to, castration yeah. and, and all that with people that were deemed undesirable. You know, this was actually kind of a dark time, um, especially in U.S. history for you know, eugenics or for the idea of, you know, deficient people and, and, and how we treated them. Yeah. So I I would have been interested to, to, um, go and and do some research. I'm over this book, so I'm not, I'm not going to do any more research (laughs) on it, but I, maybe if I get curious someday, I I would be interested to see how people in, in the time that he wrote it, not, not, I'm not talking the 1920s. I'm talking when, Faulkner actually published the book, sure. how they reacted to the Benji section, if they thought it was insightful or sweet or like, I just like, I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested because, you know, obviously think we are much more empathetic oh, absolutely. Now, nowadays than, than we would have sure. been back then. No, absolutely. So, um, yeah, that would be interesting to kind of see how that was perceived when you had a different sort of social consciousness about yeah about people with with disabilities and things of that nature. I, th- I think anytime I get into a book like this, where again it's critically acclaimed and you know and something that is part of of canon, 
um, that is difficult to to go through and, and enjoy um, at a very basic level. You know, nowadays it, I always try to sort of put myself you know back in those things, and that was one of the thoughts that I had had this week was was about Benji, but. Um, something else I, I was thinking about, um, and I actually, this is in the form of a question. How long did it take you to figure out, um, like how the characters were related and w- like what race they were? Like I, I had problems sorting out like who was in, in the Compton family and, um, and, and who worked for them and yeah, like, it was difficult. who it was, was difficult doing what and why. Early on, especially, yeah, well, yeah, through Benji's kind of viewpoint, yeah. there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of like, oh, this is so-and-so, their part, you know, they're, right. they work for the family and this is the family. And that's another thing that was tough to digest because this is, Benji was the first step that that chapter was how you're introduced to everybody, right. you know, the, the cast of characters and the way that you're introduced into them is it's very confusing. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It took me a while. I think definitely not on my first, you know, I had to go back and when I reread this whole segment, I'm not going to pretend like I'm, you know, great. Yeah. I, I definitely had to go back and reread this and still there's, there are, there are things within this first little bit that I find confusing and, and were difficult to kind of piece together. And that, that was, that was a challenge trying to uh. decipher, you know, okay, this character, how they're related, and and you know the whole issue with uh, his uncle and and the neighbors, right. and, and, and yeah, it's just the oh. cheating. Was, yeah, yeah, it was, no, it, there were just like there were just too many things going on, and maybe that was part of the overall effect, right? Is that like for for Benji, they're just people. It do, he doesn't really give a fuck who you sure. know, somebody is to him. Yeah, um, there wasn't that. You know, when you grow up, you have these sort of the way that you view other people is shaped kind of on your you know your social interaction. Maybe if it was right. somewhere else narrating, they would have they would have described these characters in maybe a more demeaning like like oh we're looking down on them type of way. Whereas it was right. kind of it was kind of an, an even playing field from Benji's perspective. Everyone was just, they were people, right? happening you know there were things happening it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't corrupted by the idea of like where they were in whatever social hierarchy yeah caddy wasn't my sister you know like he he never like assigns roles to people sure um which was like i said was difficult for me to go through and that was actually more so than the than the narrative piece that was something that I struggled with the most early and what forced me to reread like the first probably 20 pages. Yeah, just, three to get, times. just to get the characters in order. Three yeah, fucking no, I, times. I hear you. It was, it was insane. Um, one thing I, I do want to note, um, and we talked about this uh, before the show, was that you know with the disjointed narrative, it was sometimes difficult to, to make the jump. And I think one thing that w- that's interesting to think about is that Faulkner had... Uh, actually propose using different colored ink to help yeah. people like do that. And there and actually is, there are some limited editions that I think it was, I read, cause I read about this. It was like 2000 oh, really? or 2,500 something editions made where they actually did that after the fact wow. they had different colored ink for the, for the different time periods, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not something I would have ever, you know, it's not something I'm, I would have seen in a book or anything like that. But then again, the way that the narrative storytelling takes place in this first chapter is not something that I can readily think yeah. of another example of in another book. So, yeah, I think that that would have been helpful in terms of deciphering the different uh, the different periods. Yeah. But, you know, again, when you when you read through it and read through it again and maybe even a third time, it, it started kind of making more sense. Yeah, somewhat. Um, you 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 do by the end of it sort of accept that 
you know, you're going to be confused at when, when things transition and you'll kind of figure it out as it goes. Yeah. But it'd be interesting to see a copy of the, I would love, I would love to see that. Um, it's probably highly collectible too. I bet. Um, all right. So let's, let's, let's move on. Let's, um, let's talk about the second part, which, um, jumps way back in time to June 2nd, 1910. Yeah. So it's about 18 years. So the present for when we're taking place in the books, 28, and then we have three distinct time periods of, like 1900, 1910, and then the present, 1928. Yeah. So at least, at least we're, we're, we're presented with that from Benji's perspective. And then whenever we go into the Quentin chapter, we're kind of in the middle of the, in the middle of the road there. Yeah. And, um, so actually early on, I, 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 I forgot about this quote and, and they used it in a movie. And for the life of me, I can't remember, uh, what, what movie it is, but, uh, this is one of my favorite favorite quotes. I I love watches, so that's okay. that's part of part of it. But um, so he's talking about his his father, what his father said when he gave him the watch the watch that he smashed, um, and he he says, uh, "I give you uh, the mausoleum of all hope and desire. I give it to you so that you may not remember time, but that you might forget it now and then for a moment, and not spend all your breath trying to conquer it." And I, th- I think that's like it's a great quote. It's, it's fantastic, and uh, it's it's one of those things that like Faulkner probably like thought, oh, this is like this is a brilliant concept. Like I've got to write this in, but like I just uh, I love that quote so much. Yeah, I mean, and then he smashed the watch, and then he smashed <laughs> the watch. Unfortunately, but yeah, just the idea that having kind of taking you know time is ever present in your mind and you're always thinking about kind of time and so the watch is an idea of taking that burden off you where it's like i don't need to think about time i have something that does it for me at least momentarily i can obsess on something else yeah and i mean as as great as that quote is um i don't think it's true at all like yeah I i find myself like especially when i'm waiting on something or i don't have anything to do I find myself looking at a clock a whole lot. Sure. Um, and it, it is almost annoying, uh, to do that. But, um, so let, let's, let's talk about Quentin. Cause I think that, I think there's, there's some interesting things about him. Okay. Um, so he's, he's off at, at university. He's uh, off at Harvard. Yeah. Harvard, uh, he not just, doing well. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the completion of his first year is when yeah. we're kind of picking it up and then it's kind of a retrospect of his thoughts and feeling leading towards this desire to, well, kill himself. Well, he's, and, he's and he does. Yeah. And we find out later that he actually does, um, through Jason's story, right. Yeah. The, in the third part. Um, but so there's there's a lot to lots to unpack. Obviously, Faulkner hits on the whole concept of time again with mm-hmm. you know the relation of the watch and, and all of that in in the beginning. Um, but you had a point about sort of his obsession with um, like past. Well, my right? whole thought after reading the book and after breaking it down. Um, and I talked to my sister a little bit about it too because she's much smarter than I am, and if she ever <laughs> listens to this, she'll appreciate that. Um, it's just this idea, you know, we have four different sections in this book and, um, I think they each kind of address the idea of the past, the present and the future. And that it, it really, it addresses those, you know, through the lens of this one family, which you can, you know, you can kind of relate to in your own family or your own things. Sure. And the way it kind of breaks down is Benji 
is sort of our time crawler. He he sort of the way that his narrative lays out, it addresses kind of the past and the present and you know, I guess maybe even the thoughts of the future, but it does so kind of objectively and it sets that up Mm -hmm. for the next three segments where you have Quentin, which is very heavily kind of looking into the past and looking at, you know, especially his relationship with Caddy and how that sort of has led to this distraught and sort of just, you know, depressed and and neurotic state that he's in. And then you have Jason who's kind of more concerned about the present and just sort of getting by and, you know, the things that he needs to do and and making money in these. And then the last segment where it's more of a, more of a broad scope narrator, but you have Dilsey and it's kind of like through the events of the past, how does this, you know, how do they rally and, and move on into the future and accept it and, and do the sorts of things like that. So I thought yeah. this was interesting, you know, going back. This was one of the few things I took away from the book that I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Like I can see how that, you know, we we can address the different obsessions or not necessarily the obsessions, but the things that shade the way that you look at the world. Because I know, you know, mm-hmm. for most people, I imagine it's all three. You know, you're not super, you know, you're not obsessed obsessed about the past sure. or the present or the future that, that that each of them play a role kind of in your collective consciousness behind the decisions you make. And it's like, well, you know, you think about maybe things that you could have done better in the past or you think about the decisions that you have right now or the yep. things that you need. And then you kind of plan for the future. And I think it's interesting that you have in each of these, in each of the other brothers besides Benji, it seems they're more, more heavily you know, fixated on one segment, you know, you have Quinn who we're talking about is just really, you know, everything about it is, oh, the failings of the past and his inability, you know, through his own, I guess, warped idea of, of chivalrous, of, of his responsibility to his younger sister to prevent, you know, or to protect her purity and, and things like that, that it really just sort of warps him from being able to process, you know, the present and the future. He's so fixated on that, that it seemingly just drives him to the point of, of killing himself. You know, I, I just, I just had a sort of a revelation, um, that almost if, if you take the, the first three parts, they're almost kind of parables for, um, your ability to, um, uh, get control of, uh, time's influence on you, right? Yeah. Like, so like Benji is sort of a, a victim of somebody who cannot control. Sure. He's um, a present in his, all three times. It's, yeah, it's he, not something he, he can control how he views, you know, what, what he fixates on or what he focuses right. on in his own life. And then Quentin, you know, is, is fixated very much on the past, very much on, on dying Southern ideals. Yeah. Um, on, you know, his, his past relationship with, with Caddy, um, about, you know, her transgressions and all of that. And, you know, you can see that him killing himself and, and the state that he is in is a direct result of, of fixating on that. Yeah. And then, you know, Jason, then, you know, very much the opposite. He, he very much is, is living in the present, um, and doesn't have a, a, a grip really more on the future than on the past. Um, because he, he basically drives his family into ruin, um, which, you know, we don't need to get into, we'll get but to it just sec, sort of, yeah. it sort of, sort of dawned on me, um, that it, it sort of, it's kind of a, a book about, you know, you need to balance your perspective of time. You yeah. can't focus too much on the past. You can't, uh, just live in the present and, uh, you better think about some combination of all three or time will overwhelm you. 
um, and and make you basically incapacitate you. We just I, had a breakthrough for you there, Ryan. Nuts, you have a new nuts. appreciation and understanding for this book, that's, despite that's the all, fact uh, that it was. And that's what I'm saying. Like the, yeah. the thing about this book, and we can get to kind of our our general you know feelings at the end. It's a tough book. It was a tough book to read. Absolutely, but there is a lot of there is a lot of good in there. Mm-hmm. If you if you if you have the time to go through and try to digest it, I just warmed up to this book like go. just this instant a little, a little uh, bit. We're changing lives here, uh, but you in know, the studio, yeah, so, so, on the go. Huh. All right, so, so Quentin, anything else about let's, Quentin? Let's, yeah, no, no. I, I think I think we should talk a lot about Quentin. Um, I, I, I agree. I think Quentin. So for me, going into it, uh, you know, I think the first hundred pages of this book are very difficult, mm-hmm. and for different reasons. I think Benji's is difficult just because of trying to comprehend the the narrative, but I think Quentin's is difficult just trying to kind of reconcile. Um, you know, hit the, the the fact that everything he's doing is like you said, it's, it's, it's very past, you know, it's very obsessed about the past and just kind yeah. of the slow degradation and kind of neurosis of his mind warping the narrative that it was also, it was more digestible because, you know, again, he, in, in his storytelling, he also had, you know, he also had those moments where it would be an emotional marker that it would kind of, he would talk a little bit about the past and things of that nature, mm-hmm. but it was a lot more digestible than Benji's because it was, it was very apparent and obvious and all that. But just that whole total package was just very, I don't know. It was kind of, dep- I mean, it was depressing yeah. uh, for starters, but I, I get that that was kind of the, the, the feeling and, and, and what it was going for there. But that coupled with what you had just read through the Benji made it, it was, it was one of those times it was like, man, I really, I really have to want to do this for the podcast because this is tough to get through. So I I think the thing that's interesting to me about, about Quentin is the, the fixation on Caddy. Um, I mean, that's the very core, that's the core of his character really outside of, outside of his kind of obsessive protective nature over Caddy. There isn't a whole lot there of Quentin. No, not at all. And I mean, he's he early on, and then even even later. I mean, he's very uh, clearly fixated on um, the idea of you know virginity and like purity and that and that sort of thing, and um, you know his own. I would assume inadequacy, you know, to uh, uh, to be with with other people. But um, other than that, like so, you know. First of all, do you think that that Quentin has like genuine incestual feelings for Caddy? I think or there's did? A, I think there's a tinge of that. I think that throughout the throughout the story, when you're hearing kind of the way that he speaks about it and kind of everything that's been taken in, yeah, I think it would be easy to say that there was this awkward romantic, you know, yeah, this this romantic feeling in his mind, yeah. And I, I think that that played a lot. You know, I think that played an even higher role in in sort of his just overall distraught. Not even so much that it was, you know, that it was, oh, her purity and all this, but maybe that he feels some type of yeah, romantic remorse that it maybe wasn't he being involved. I don't know. But yeah. It's, it, there certainly is that that weird kind of tinge of, and, and I mean, it's not it's not like it's it, they beat around the bush. I mean, there's even a point where he comes out and and claims, you know, that he's right. had an incestuous relationship with his father in order to try to, I guess, uh to try to place the the guilt and the blame on himself because he feels some sort of misguided, you know, need to protect her, um, you know. Yeah, which uh, that that that's the other component to this is sort of this this uh, character conflict within within Quentin. Like 
he does have this sort of like um, this dying sense of Southern morality uh, where he does feel like he's got to, you know, protect his his sister and his his family, like their honor. Right. Um, And seemingly that's his ass backwards motivation for, you know, doing this. Uh, like claiming to his father that that uh, they had an ancestral uh, incestuous incestuous incestual you were incestual. saying ancestral yeah, no, I just, incest. I, <laughs> incestuous uh, better the bookshelf better the bookshelf we, where we make up our own words or not a vocabulary podcast uh, no so I, I, I'm terrible at spelling yeah um, okay so um, you know you you, you have. Um, you have the dying, you know, Southern morality. Then you have him claiming this very immoral thing to try to sort of preserve that. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting, um, that there, there's sort of a dynamic of his parents that, um, are, are in his conflict there because it seems like the, like their mother is, uh, much more traditional, um, you know, she doesn't want the kids to be called nicknames. She wants yeah. to use their full names. I mean, names. she's obsessed with kind of the, the you know, how the perception is of her old family's name, right. especially in the interactions with her brother and, you right. know, his own affair and things like that. And his, his father is much less concerned about that. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and so... Um, I mean, to the even point where when he, you know, when Quentin sort of is upset about Caddy losing her virginity and, you know, the, it, he just straight up says, you yeah, know, right, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Yeah, virginity is something, something that's made man, up. Man made up. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see how his parents' characters sort of seem to have manifested um, that conflict in him. Yeah. Um, but so... <laughs> Is is it just the stupidest thing ever to try to like save your honor by by claiming something really dishonorable? I, I mean, I, I can't I can't get behind. But I, that it's rationale. Not, he's not trying to save his honor. I think he's trying to he's trying to to create something you know more even more dishonorable for himself to I guess overshadow that. Which I can understand is in a way he sees as honorable, but I mean it's just strange. It's a strange reaction to yeah. something when you're like you know. When your response to I want to preserve her honor is yeah we you know I had it we had an incestual relationship incestual I said it too yes. incestuous yes oh my I'm god ca- Colin Webster oh my god incestuous yeah yeah and then the other thing that's funny about it too is that he doesn't really take into consideration that um that 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 her illegitimate daughter is already going to have to deal with being um, an illegitimate daughter and. Being an incestuous, or inc- oh my god! No, you're right. Incestuous. <laughs> I, I thought I did it again. Incestuous, uh, illegitimate daughter. On top of that, it doesn't make her situation any better. So he's clearly not uh, not thinking. Sure, it's I, a very th- dysfunctional thought process at work there. Yeah. Him. So I'm I'm in that regard. Uh, I'm, I'm, I feel like the world is probably a better place that he bought those weights and tossed himself in the river. Um, <laughs> I, it's, I, I just, uh, the guy was weird. Sure. I, I, I just couldn't, just, uh, yeah. I mean, everything about it was just, it's a very dysfunctional sort of ideology at play about how he views his responsibility to his sister and kind of the, you know, his role in preserving and protecting her purity. Yeah. I just, it was strange. I think, okay, so here's here's what I'll say. Of the two first, obviously Benji's was a little bit tougher to digest. Of the first two sections, which yep. did you prefer? 
Um, in retrospect, uh, I think I, I think I preferred Benji's just because it told more of a complete story and it wasn't yeah. quite as fixated on a single concept. Sure. Um, but for ease of, of reading, uh, for, for sure, uh, Quentin's, but if I think, uh, yeah, I think if I'm looking at the first two from a, uh, when I, when I take the parts out and try to see which, which kind of shaped how I, how I understood the story, you know, I think that after a few rereadings, I, I, I thought the Benji section was surprisingly more, I don't know, more enjoyable, if that's a, the way to put it. I, I, yeah. I honestly, the first two sections, I didn't really enjoy all that much to begin with, but, um, I think that Benji's, you know, I, I could take something out of Benji's that, you know, although it was, although it was strange and, and difficult to read, it was more so just sort of the, the complications behind trying to take all the information and in, not necessarily what you're reading and what you're kind of experiencing. Yeah. Whereas in Quentin's section, it was just, I don't know. Everything was just strangely depicted from kind of a mind that's just sort of spiraling out, you know, based on this own guilt and just sort of misplaced, you know, protection instinct. Yeah. So let's let's move on to the the third second let's, section. Let's talk about um, let's talk about Jason. And this was and the first part of the book where it was actually. I mean, it was just it was narrated and told in just a very plain. Yeah, fashion, which which was a nice which was a nice change of pace. Yep, um, I appreciated that certainly. But uh, I mean, this was my least favorite of the three uh, first three sections. Why? Just because of Jason? Like, yeah, just because just because of the the viewpoint and just the just kind of typically whenever I don't know whenever there are very few books that I can think of in my mind that have that have narrated. That are that are being narrated from someone so you don't sympathize with it all, so completely unsympathetic. Yeah, that it's it's difficult for me to care. He's a dastardly dude. It's, so it, so yeah, I mean, like typically, like like take take tally. He's he's stealing money from his sister, like over what a fifteen year period. Yeah, right. He has a prostitute in Memphis. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Um, and he's just like he's awful to his entire family. Sure. On like on top of that. Yeah. Uh obviously and Benji's that, and that yeah, that coupled with, you know, the things that we already know from the Benji chapter, just right. based on, you know, the castration and things of that nature. Yeah. It's tough, man. It was tough to read this, uh, not because it was it was difficult to digest, but it was yeah, it's just I don't know. It's I I find it very hard to 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 like get him to to, to continue on or to get him you know, get interested in, in a narrative viewpoint from someone. So I don't know, easily despised Yeah, as a character. Yeah. And, and so to, to, to kind of bring it back to the theme of, of time, right? Like right. he is, is only obsessed with what's right in front of sure, him the at present. the moment. Very much just, just getting along. Right. And as, as a result of that, he, basically ends his family line if if and is maybe we're, we're gonna kind of co-mingle the third and, and fourth part here a, a little but um he has pretty much by his his own nature ensured i'm assuming nobody's ever going to want to marry this guy yeah um he 
you know, Benji is, is who he is. Caddy is, uh, you know, divorced and has, uh, has, doesn't even have her daughter. Like she's not, you know, part of that, that family really anymore. Um, she's alienated from everything. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was really, Jason was sort of the, the last person who could carry on this, you know, sort of like family legacy, um, which doesn't seem to have, you know, uh, seasoned well from, you know, the sort of post-slavery Southern era to, you know, where we are in the, in the late 1920s. And then, you know, everybody just kind of goes to shit on top of it. Um, so man, struggling. I don't even know what else I want to say about Jason. I mean, it's just this, this whole segment is just kind of a day in the life of, of Jason in the present. I don't know. Yeah. It was, it was, he gets chased by, a ha- uh, basically a carny with a hatchet, which is nice. Yeah. Um, he gets his, gets his, uh, air let out of his tire after he's chasing, uh, Miss Quentin around. Yeah. Um, which you kind of get the you get the cli- the climax of that sort yeah. of tension in the fourth segment. Yep. But uh, yeah, I don't know. There's not a whole lot from this for me. Okay. To take out it well, was it was you know it was another it was I guess important in its own sense of giving us you know perspective from his viewpoint. But uh, other than that, I didn't really take a whole lot out of this one. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk about the fourth section then. Um, and I think we should talk about uh, Dilsey. Yeah, the fourth section, which was just another, again, another narrative shift. We've we've now kind of come full circle to the more traditional third person, third person omniscient, omniscient <laughs> narration. Um, but it does kind of central. Like Dilsey is kind of, if I would have to say, kind of a central, a central protagonist in this in this fourth section. Someone that yeah. we're interested in and 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 actively kind of seeing what's going on. It's it's with her. Yeah. The thing that's interesting. And she's one of the few, she's one of the few, if not the only character throughout the book that you're genuinely are like, okay, you know, this is someone that it's there, there's good and, yeah. and, and you want them to be happy and, right. And, and succeed. Even though, I mean, she's, she's basically, you know, a, uh, a caretaker for everybody in the house. Um, yeah. You know, maid, cook, uh, caregiver, uh, I mean, she's, she's kind of everything all, all throughout. And, um, she's the only person that seems to have any interest in making sure that the family at large is okay. Yeah. That they, that they persevere, that they stick together. And that's, that's where the fourth thing of this comes in, where we have, where, like I said earlier, Dilsey is the, is the future. She is the one that's, that actually has that concept of, okay, how are we going to you know, get through, accept the past, accept the present and take what we have to sort of move into the future to ensure that this family can at least, you know, persevere for however much longer they can. Yeah. But, uh, but in, and the irony of it is, is she's not, she's not even a part of the family. family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, is that of all, yeah. Of all the things, you know, of all the people responsible for ensuring that she would be certainly the least, you know, likely, but she's, she is what she is. Yeah. And I, th- I think I, I found that interesting too. you know, just it was kind of a reminder about how slowly the South changed, um, you know, and, and obviously civil rights and stuff was still, 
you know, three decades, decades away, away yeah. you know, but, um, it was just the, all throughout the, you know, the race relations, um, and the, the way that the, the Comptons and, and others would, would talk to, uh, to TP and stuff like yeah. it was just, it was, it was really, um, it was really interesting to see that sort of, I don't want to say frozen in time, but, you know, sort of, uh, you know, going, going very slowly compared to, uh, you know, the legal changes of, of that time. But, um, yeah, I, I, I would have, I would have liked to have seen the entire story written from her perspective. Um, like, did she ever really think that it was as absurd as, as I do in retrospect that these people acted the way that they did and like, didn't take responsibility. Like nobody takes responsibility for anything. Like if you think about it from beginning to end, Benji can't, uh, Quentin certainly doesn't, um, and tries to take responsibility for things he shouldn't. Sure. Jason takes no responsibility. The parents don't seem to either for, for their children. Um, yeah, they seem preoccupied with their own, you know, uh, things. I think that that's a big influence on why, you know, things have kind of spiraled out, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy that she's the one that, kind of seems to be the only one taking responsibility for seeing, you know, seeing the family survive. Yeah. And, and they won't like in, in, in spite of all or despite all of her, her effort, um, they're, they're not going to, I mean, it's, it's inevitable. Um, what was your, what was your last, your last question that we were, we were talking about before, before the show? Um, um, talking I mean, about just sort of the approachability of the of the book in general. Uh, oh, I was just, I mean, this not necessarily about the book, but about kind of the how highly regarded this book is. Yeah, let's not let's necessarily the the subject of the book because, like I said, I think the big thing for me was kind of how we felt about the idea of the representation of the time and the differences mm-hmm. between the boys. And I guess on even a, a a more basic level, just like which of the three narratives do you think was most important to kind of understanding the sort of the overall downfall of this family? Like I, I know that, that obviously Benji's is more of a, here's what happened, but I can see certain aspects in terms of the way that Quentin views, you know, Caddy and, and that whole situation. And, and then even from Jason's viewpoint, like which of the three narratives um, do you think kind of more represents the cause or, or I guess sort of the downfall of this family? Man. Um, I think. Uh, so th- there's, there seems to be a lot more like exposition in, in Jason's narrative. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I kind of want to say Benji because like with, with his time jumping, um, and the imagery that he uses to describe, you know, certain situations, I think that his, I want to say insight cause he doesn't really have any insight, but I mean, um, he does though, the, well, to but, some, like when it's like simple things, like when he smell like he associates like Caddy's perfume that she uses earlier yeah. with, with that sort of blossoming into that sort of promiscuity. And then later whenever she comes back and he smells the same perfume and it, right. it makes him sad because he knows that that's sort of that situation. Like, yeah, I think that, that there, there is that sort of 
that observant, like that surprisingly from a character that's written kind of the way that he is and, and what we know about him, that he has that kind of insight. Yeah. Although it's, you know, it's nonverbal. It's, 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 it's it, very reptilian, right? Yeah, like it's like kind he of just sort of, yeah, he just he sort knows. of reacts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that would be, I think that would, that is my answer is that. Okay. Yeah, I agree. You, I agree. Think so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, as much as it's kind of the, you would think that, okay, when I, when we're sort of thinking about the downfall or sort of the events that, that, you know, happened to this family, you would think that it would be Jason who you can kind of see sort of the maliciousness throughout the things that he does or Quentin kind of just the, the selfishness and the just sort of delusion that you would think that. But I think that really the Benji kind of narrative sums it up a little bit more appropriately. Okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, outside of the actual content of the book, the, the other big question for me was just kind of on sort of the, how this book has been received after the fact. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's regarded as his best book. Sure. Like, I mean, do you have any, do you have, I know we've kind of, we've, this no. is an episode, unfortunately, where we're kind of short yeah. on questions just because this book is very, we just, we kind of had to just go through it and get it yeah. out there. It's not so much that we had questions to pinpoint from it. Okay. But the thing for me, all right. So obviously the book's very highly regarded and, uh, I think it's also a lot like, like Hemingway that we had touched on where you have people that will herald it and you have people that are just, you know, uh, it was terrible, you know, yeah. it, it's very divisive. And so the thing for me that, uh, it kind of felt like, I feel like this book is, is really highly regarded just because of how hard it is and, and, you know, how, how it sometimes it, it, it feels like it's trying to be, you know, inaccessible that if like as a reader, as a mind, if you approach it with just enough patience and enough, you know, determination to kind of to push through it and decipher it and all this that, you know, you're you get to be you get to pat yourself on the back and, and be one of those, you know, few people that, you know, it's like, oh, I'm I'm you know, I'm part of the literary elite that have slogged through this, that that I have this sort of exclusivity about how difficult of a read it is. And, you know, that's kind of what. That to me kind of seemed like what I had gathered from uh, just sort of all the uh, the claim behind it. Like, now, don't don't get yeah. me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think that you know I'm not going to deny the craft and sort of the worksmanship and sort of the boldness of the ideas he's going with here, and you know, toying with sort of the the narrative storytelling and sort of the you know nonlinear non-linear time periods and, and the stream of consciousness style and just the fact that, you know, you have some, you know, paragraphs where there's no breaks and punctuation and all these other things that are seemingly kind of adapted into this writing style. But for me personally, personally, this is just my personal opinion. I like to read books for two reasons. One, the first one is to learn something new or something interesting. I usually get this through nonfiction, sometimes through fiction. You never know. Sure. But mostly through nonfiction because I kind of target like fields and, and, and uh, you know, just I guess periods or, or things that interest me. I, I try to find nonfiction books about the subject to sort of learn more about it or to learn something interesting. Or in a lot of times with fiction, uh, I just want to enjoy a story. You know, yeah. I, I think as human beings, we love, you know, a good story, whether it's through music or movies or books. You know, that captivates us. It, 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 it sparks our imagination. You know, it makes us sort of wonder. You get that sort of joy from that, that just overall kind of like you feel deep down warm inside of you, that sure. happiness. 
And uh, this book didn't do any of those things for me. And so it's, it's, I understand that maybe there are other motivations in play behind why people read or why people hold books in high regard. But it's just, it's odd to me because it wasn't something that, that satisfied either of those desires for me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there are, there are certainly books that, that give you that, you know, that euphoria. And then there are sort of ones that like, you know, sort of, um, give you sustenance, right? Like give you understanding. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I think this book is important. I don't think it is highly enjoyable. Um, but you know, I, I think that there are, there are certainly things to, to take from Faulkner. I think there is, is a lot of, um, a lot of interesting commentary, uh, again, about the sort of end of the, the, the sort of Southern code, um, and, and, you know, changing morality of, of the time in which, you know, the, the book takes place. Um, you know, the, the narrative style, uh, is, is obviously also important. Um, and, you know, I, I think you, you have to keep that in, in perspective, but, you know, again, like when we talk about why, why we, did this podcast in the first place, you know, part of it sort of is to have that, like that badge, right? Like we said, we're going to fucking read Faulkner. So we, we did That's it, true. right? You yeah, know, like I mean, nobody can tell you that you, that you haven't read Faulkner and you don't understand because you're, you can say, no, I, I I've read, read it. Through. Go listen to the I podcast. Made, I, I at least, I, yeah. yeah. I didn't just read it. I tried to understand it to a point where right. I could at least discuss it somewhat. Exactly. And, and I think that's, that's the point when you get into th- to things that are literary like this, even when they're not highly enjoyable, you still walk away with something. And yeah, it's a little bit self-congratulatory to have done it, um, you know, but you did it. You, you did learn something in something that maybe we'll think about later on when we get to, sure. to something else. And yeah, like like we were kind of talking about earlier, this sort of like ongoing development throughout the, the process of talking about it and just the idea of time and, and sort of the human, you know, human nature of fixation on one of those things. Like that's right. something that was interesting that yeah. I didn't really think about until we started talking Ex- about it. Exactly. So, so yeah, you know, again... Uh, it, it was a tough read. So it's not something traditionally that I would, uh, seek out or, or read, but, uh, you know, I guess, I guess I'm glad that we, that we've read it just for the fact of it's, it's <laughs> even like you said, self-congratulatory, you know, pat yourself yeah. on the back. But I feel like a lot of the, what I've seen and read and, uh, you know, maybe people just have a better understanding of, or I guess the people that do thoroughly, you know, have this book in high regard that I guess they have a better understanding of maybe the themes and sort of the, the nature of the style of writing around the time. Yep. Like I'm sure there's a lot of outside influence. I mean, hell, you know, we both have this stinking Norton, Norton critical, yeah, I mean, you know, edition of this book where it's, you know, it's a 200 page book and we've got another 200 something pages of, right. you know, critical analysis and essays and all. So, so clearly there's something obviously important enough about this book that so much has been written on right, it. Right, right. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of it does kind of feel like it's, you know, the the claim for this book is to be, is that, oh, you were you were one of the few, you know, erudite folk who could yeah. decipher through the puzzle pieces and put it together to truly enjoy the story. And so it loses a little bit for me because of that. Okay, so let's... let's I'm just a simple caveman, Ryan. I like my books that go from point A to B to C, you know. Uh, okay, so let's let's uh, let's make it official. Let's run it through our our rating system. So enlighten me again on. We're still new to this whole thing. Enlighten me again on yep. our rating system here, Ryan. So, so for so us and the fans keep, at home, fan at home, 
keep hey, mom. or donate. <laughs> uh, keep or donate. Okay. Uh, bottom shelf, if we keep it, middle shelf or top shelf. And uh, then, do you want to go first? Um, oh, yeah. Also, left to right, I guess, if we're, yeah. if we're comparing it to other books that we've put on that sort of shelf. Yeah. I Well, yeah. That... I can't even picture our shelf, and we're only we're only three books in. Uh, I think we both got Hemingway mid shelf, like yeah. about middle middle to right, and then we've got uh, all the light we cannot see. I think we both said top, top shelf. shelf. I was kind of middle middle left. I okay. think you were solid middle. Um, so I, I'm going to put this one. I'm, I'm going to keep this one first of all. Yeah, um, that's fair. No, actually, I take that back. I'm I'm going to donate this one because having read um, some of his other stuff, I think that ah shit. No. Mm. Okay, I'm going to keep this one because I'm conflicted. <laughs> okay. And I'd You're rather conflicted I, enough. I'd rather only buy it once Air in on my the life. Side of, of I, I'll put it I'll put it firmly bottom shelf um and uh and uh, far to the right, I guess, until I have something something else to replace it with. It's something I want people to see me have, but I don't want <laughs> to see it again. we're going back to the self-congratulatory. <laughs> exactly. If someone else happens to venture by your bookshelf right. who's read it, they'll same go, reason, oh, wow, same I Same reason really I have you. Shakespeare's collected anthology over there. You there. Go. So it's it's not a something big... you, that's not something you crack open every day just to get a taste of? <laughs> no, I, oh. t- I took one class in college on it, and uh, I, I that, that was good enough for me. Fair okay. enough. What about you? Yeah, I'm keeping it um, just because there are very few books that I'd actually get rid of, especially like older copies of books. I, you know, I like yeah. books from a collector standpoint because, again, you know, your tastes change as you grow older. You're, you know, there might be some time in the future where I want to come back to this book, maybe sure. from a different viewpoint, uh, and you know, I want it to be available. So I'm keeping it. I'm also going to put it on the bottom shelf just because I think that we had discussed this previously. The bottom shelf isn't where we put, you know, terrible books. If we're keeping a book, we think highly enough of it. Right, if it's right. a terrible book, we're getting rid of it. I think the bottom shelf, however, is reserved for things that. Um, I'm not actively looking to read. I'm not actively looking to recommend right. under most circumstances. Maybe there are, there are a few people in my life that I would maybe recommend this book, but it's certainly not something sure. that I'm just going to go out there and recommend for everyone to just sort of digest. Um, so I think it, I think it's safe there on the bottom shelf. Um, you know, with a lot of things, you know, if it's, if there are certain texts that I want to keep or certain, you know, yeah. books, like for example, when I was doing my, uh, when I was doing my schooling for, uh, getting my paramedic certification, I have, you know, my like anatomy, yeah. and my clinical anatomy book. And I keep that there because a lot of times I may need to reference it for something. And sure. so I know it's safe and I know it's there. And this is along kind of that same road is I'll, I'll keep it down there. Maybe my thoughts will change in the future. Maybe I need to reference it for something in the future. Sure. Maybe something we do on the podcast and we want to go back and reference it. But uh, yeah, it's bottom shelf for me. Unfortunately, it's, you know, I, I, I can appreciate, you know, the acclaim, but it's just, it's not something that I'm going to be actively recommending or wanting to read. I think that's, again. that's perfectly fair. All right. Which brings us to the uh, most exciting part of this week. We have a new book for next for week. Next week. And what, or next episode, next I should episode. Say. What is so, it? So having been made into two movies separately previously, um, you know, we, a lot of the sound of the fury, what we're kind of dealing with here is sort of post civil war, sort of that sort of ideology in the South. And I know it's not directly post civil war. We're like yeah, 60 yeah, yeah. or so years removed, but you know, a lot of sort of the ideas and, and that. And so here's my cheap bullshit way of relating okay. uh, our book for our, 
next episode, which is True Grit by Charles Portis. Have you ever seen? I, I think we talked about this before. Have you ever yeah, seen the movies? I, I I definitely haven't seen the original, and I'm I'm fairly sure that I've I've seen the remake, but I'm I'm not positive. Okay, well I've seen both. I've seen the John Wayne one and the Jeff Bridges one. Okay. I, I've enjoyed them both for different reasons, but this was always like uh, you know my uh, my grandfather growing up. He would always he read he read a lot of westerns like Louis L'Amour and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and yeah. So I I'd kind of read westerns, but it was never like my thing. Um, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to get the book. I'm going to I'm gonna give it a read because I enjoyed the story in the movies. I think maybe the book might get into, I mean, traditionally, whenever you have a, a book that's been made into a movie, you can find a little bit more enjoyment, a little more depth sure. yep. in the book. So, yeah, so Western and uh, our tie-in here is just kind of the idea of the change and sort of the, the impact post, yep. you know, post-Civil War times in the American South and especially the Southwest. Yeah. Sort of the idea of expansion and and sort of the things that that happen within that. So yes, True Grit by Charles Portis. I think I have the one of the original 1968 versions Excellent. here. Another self congratulatory pat on the back. I love old books. <laughs> I love the smell of old books. I love the way they look. I love the weird art. I've been I've you been know, keeping these uh, things half price in business uh, with this with this podcast so far. Exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I can find that. And I've actually never read a western before. So all right, um, well, this will be fun. It's uncharted waters, and for it's me. you know it's a we kind of gotta we kind of gotta get our, ourselves a little bit of a, whew, a little change of pace after yeah, after this. Let's, a little bit lighter. Sigh, read. Of, re- sigh of relief. A little lighter read. A little more delve into just sort of a traditional fiction. Like let's let's just get a western tale of yeah. of of all sorts of hoot nannies going on in here. Hoot nannies, and I'll all right. use hoot nannies next week. Plenty. All right, perfect. Uh, so on that note, thank you for for listening to our podcast. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, feel free to go check yeah, those go back and out. Give them a look. Um, and we try to crank these out every two weeks. So, uh, look for another one, uh, two weeks from this one releasing and, uh, next week, true grit, hoot nannies, looking forward to it. 